we began a new series called Real Change, uh, Becoming More Like Jesus in Everyday Life. Now, this sermon series is based on a course called Real Change, which we've run a number of times already in the church and plan to do again. Uh, that's a course which itself is built on the original works of the likes of Paul Tripp, uh, Timothy Lane, David Powlison of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Um, many of those books we have on our bookstall. Now, we're doing this series on real change because we want to drill down into the mechanics of everyday Christian discipleship uh, to not only know what God is doing in our world and in us, but to figure out how. Um, so last year, uh, we did a series like this on the subject of disciple-making. Our aim was to look at how God is using us to make disciples of Christ. But in this series, we're looking more and more about how God is changing us into the likeness of Christ. So last year, making disciples. This year, this occasion, growing disciples. So the, the, the term that theologians would have for this subject is, of course, sanctification. Uh, changing more and more, bit by bit, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you the question. Where do you feel in your Christian walk do you most need to change? How are you at identifying certain areas and characteristics of life that uh, might be listed in, a, in a, a list of vices, sins, things to put to death? Or what things, if you put in a, character, a, a list of virtues, positive godly characteristics, do you want to take on? Do you want to adopt? Do you want to flourish? Maybe there are certain sins that you struggle to shake off. Where do you want to be more like Jesus? Sanctification is an inviting doctrine. It tells us that change is to be expected, and change is possible, and change is to be pursued. Now, last time, Ashley did a very good job of introducing the subject to us. He explained how God's aim is to transform us into the image of his son. And he preached on 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Ash also explained that this transformation takes place crucially through our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other. So change is possible because of the gospel and because through faith in him we are united to Christ. And change takes place, of course, in the context of a church family that is collectively ambitious to be holy as Christ himself is holy. Now, what I want to do tonight is introduce you to a model for understanding how change takes place a model that is inspired by Jeremiah chapter 17. Now, the Bible often uses concrete pictures to illustrate very important spiritual truths to us. And Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10 is a particularly good example of this. And if you're taking notes, uh, I'm going to have three points on this. Uh, but we're going to read from Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 10, first of all. And here is God's words. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one 
who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord's. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Amen. This is God's words. So we have three points tonight, and here's the first, two ways to live. Two ways to live. That's the first point. Uh, let me give you just an important bit of background. It's not good just to parachute into a passage and not know what's going on in the wider context of a book. Um, so Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10 is, is included in the book of Jeremiah, which is written to God's Old Testament people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And God is warning everyone uh, from king to their subjects that they're not living as God's people ought to live. And as a consequence, according to verses 1 to 4, which we didn't read a moment ago, judgment is coming, and we know from history that Babylon is coming to take these people off into exile. Now, in chapter 17, God zeroes in on the problem and why this exile will ultimately be necessary, it is the problem of their hearts. In verse 1, it says their hearts are hard. In verse 9, which we read, it says their hearts are deceitful. They're even self-deceived by their own inner desires and wranglings. So what does the text say specifically in verses 5 to 10? Well, verses 5 to 8 present this metaphor of two trees. One, a dry thorn bush in a barren place. The other, a fruit-laden tree in a fertile place. The former is dry and fruitless and hopeless because the heart has turned from trusting God and instead trusts in humankind, trusts in mankind's own strength. It trusts in themselves. It trusts in other people, not God's. But the latter is fruitful and productive because the heart has turned from trusting man to trusting God. Then verses 9 to 10 lay out both the problem and the solution for those who are barren and unproductive in their ungodliness. It says, your hearts are deceitful. The longings that you have within those hearts are fundamentally wrong. The promises that your own inner desires make, they're all lies. There is no fulfillment in them at all. Your desires lie to you. You see, the heart is at the heart of the cursed one's problem. Their only hope is the Lord who not only understands the heart, but can actually redeem it, change it, turn it around for his good. So this little passage 
at the, the macro level, if you're thinking big things, it shows us that there are two ways to live. Not just to people back then, but to us here today. To people whose hearts are sin-sick and self-deceived, tricked by the things that they desire, it says you have a choice. You can either trust in human beings and suffer the consequences of barrenness and judgment in life and life to come, or trust in God and enjoy the benefits of life as it was meant to be lived and the reward that God himself has promised for us. Now, to many of us here, that won't sound that surprising because that's just what Jesus teach, uh, taught himself. Um, for That's what his cross was for. He explained this to us in in many different ways, and then those who came after him in the New Testament, the apostles, explained that even more to us. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The punishment for our sin is death. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, so that all who come in repentance and faith, not trusting in man, in the flesh, but trusting in God, can be changed. Not sin-sick and self-deceived anymore, but sin-pardoned and wonderfully self-aware. And if you're not a Christian, then that's the right response to this news we call the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. It's to turn away from sin, trust in yourself, or finding your identity in anyone else or anything else apart from God's, and putting your trust placing your heart on him. That's faith and repentance, and we'd encourage you to do that. Why don't you talk to the person that brought you tonight about that a bit more, or maybe someone on the prayer team at the end of the service, or myself will be down here, happy to talk to you about that. So that's at the macro level. level. Jeremiah paints the kind of Psalm 1 picture, the, the overall New Testament picture of a, a universal choice Trust in God, trust in man. One's a thorny, barren thing, and one is a living and a fruitful thing. What would it be for you? Well, this metaphor also speaks to us not just at the macro level, but at the micro level of our everyday choices, in the ins and outs of our everyday lives. It help, helps us see even as Christians who have trusted God, how our hearts work. It helps us see how change actually takes place. And as I said, this is the passage that inspires the model for understanding change outlined in the Real Change course, which you've got uh, as a handout tonight. And I'd like to walk you through it. And this is point two, the three trees. So the three trees diagram essentially consists of four main components, but there are there are bits to elaborate on as we go throughout the weeks. And the four main components are uh, heat, thorns, cross, fruit. Now, I want you to understand how important this is. There, there are, I quite like drawing in pastoral visits. Uh, some of you will know this. Uh, but that's, I'm not inattentive and just doodling away. Uh, there have been so many occasions when I've been listening to someone talk and sharing some of their struggles and I've put a piece of paper down and I've drawn out these four things and I've encouraged people to walk through it and understand their situation better. It is so, so helpful. It's one of the reasons why we're taking some time out from our regular diet of consistent expos expository preaching through a book. 
to look at this. So it consists of heat thorns cross fruit. The heat at the top there represents the everyday struggle of living life in a fallen world. Okay? Heat comes in various forms. There are hard things that happen in life, things that worry us like suffering and illness. There are good things in life, many things that bless us and can give us joy. Those things can distract us from God. There are plenty of temptations that rush on us. How we respond to these things? Well, how do we respond? We respond in one of two ways. Uh, one, you can respond in a thorns kind of way, and this is the, the thorn bush aspect of this diagram. So if when heat comes, you trust in your own strength or in other people, as Jeremiah 17 verse 5 said, if that heart of yours turns away from the Lord and trusts in yourself, your own strength, etc., you're going to be like this wasteland bush. And living like that has consequences in our lives. It produces thorns. And of course, the root of that behavior, as you see at the bottom there, is what Jeremiah 17.9 explained. It's the sinful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible says that there's a way to respond to temptation, hardships, blessings, and that there's help to do it rightly. And this is where the cross comes in, which is the third of the three trees. That by God's grace and through his Spirit, he leads us to repentance through revealing to us more of his truth, what we understand of his word, how we understand that in community together. As we help one another understand who God is and what he has taught, as we help one another understand the sin that we see in ourselves and as a community of love and grace in each other, we then help each other See what it looks like to turn from our sin and act in ways that demonstrate true faith. Like we believe what God himself has said in his words. So we are sorry for the lack of faith or our sinful desire. The Spirit brings about that kind of conviction. He brings about this repentance. And then we take God at his word and live like it's true. That's faith. No matter what situation we're in, we trust him and by his power choose rightly. So repentance and faith are a crucial aspect of understanding how the cross applies to our daily life so that we don't respond to our heat, to our trials, to our hardships in ways that bring God's name into disrepute sinful consequences for our own lives, consequences also for other people's lives. Our sin has collateral damage. But no, it produces then through faith and repentance fruit. And that's the alternative. When our hearts are focused on God's, when our hearts are trusting in his words, we respond even to the heat of blessings or hardships in ways that bring God praise. And when we do that, we bear good fruit. We grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, we better display the glory of God to those around us so that it helps us on mission. 
it helps us as we interact with one another as committed members of a local church family together too. So how does that overall picture help us? Well, it serves us as both a mirror and a map. A mirror shows you a true reflection of yourself. A map shows you where you are and how to get to where you want to be. That's the way this diagram is meant to be used. Now, if I've just raced through that just now, you're like, actually, I can't even remember a couple of those. That's okay, because we're going to walk through this again and again over the next few weeks. And as part of each service that we have in this series, we're going to have something called a slice of life, where someone's going to share a little testimony about one aspect of how they have experienced They've used this diagram to help see themselves in the mirror, but also map out for them where they want to be and what change actually looks like in that situation. Alison's going to do that for us a little bit later on. But let me give you one little example of what I mean with one of my own little uh, slice of life things. Uh, not too long ago, I was waiting at the bus stop on Queensferry Street uh, on my way home after work. Um, I was running late, so I was a little bit edgy. Uh, but I felt myself getting edgier still at the bus stop. You see, the bus stop on Queensferry Street is the most annoying bus stop in the world, uh, officially. This is because, and it shouldn't, but it has two queues, okay? I don't know why. There is the right queue, uh, the one that follows the instructions plastered explicitly all over the bus stop, going in one direction. It even has three huge, black, bold arrows to tell you which way this, uh, this uh, bus stop queue should go. So that's the right queue, but this bus stop has another queue, the wrong queue, which goes the opposite direction. Now, there I was, trying to get home, and I, I realized, as I thought back to that scenario, I found myself <sighs> puffing out the cheeks, Sighing out loud. So my inner angst wasn't really that inner. It was outer, okay? And I was making my, my fury known to other people. And I felt myself at times even shaking my head. Now, when the bus arrived, guess what happened? Two queues. The right queue and the wrong queue converged on the bus. And people in the wrong queue were getting on before people in the right queue. And as I edged closer to the front, I, uh, I stood my ground, you might say. And uh, even looking at my phone at times, pretending not to notice the people who were trying to get on. Um, and then just as I got to the step, ready to lift my foot, I heard those fateful words, bus is full. No! That's really what I wanted to do, but I didn't do that. Uh, but then, now, I have given you an example there of something that's maybe quite everyday. <laughs> maybe it's not for you, maybe it's something different. But it seems quite mundane. So getting really quite annoyed about two queues at a bus stop and acting in a way there, it, it, it just seems so meaningless, right? Why concentrate on something like that? Well, because it matters. Because there's ungodliness. There's, there's God-defaming ungodliness in that moment. And I'm not responding in a way that demonstrates I have full trust in God's. Now, this is where something like the three trees diagram comes in handy. Let me walk through how it's a mirror and a map. 
Well, what's the heat in that situation? What particular pressure am I under? Well, one, as I mentioned earlier, I'm running late and I'm just trying to get home. And then thorns, what's going on in my head and in my heart? What's, what's being produced? Well, I've got bus queue self-righteousness for a start. I mean, who am I to dictate who's in the right and who's in the wrong queue? I mean, I want on the bus in that moment, and here's the thorny response. I actually don't care. I actually don't care one little bit if anyone else actually gets on that bus as long as I get on the bus. But I'm actually acting hatefully towards the people I deem to be wrong. I definitely don't want people in the wrong queue to get on, because I think that's not fair. So I'm sighing out loud, I'm letting people know that I'm frustrated, I'm standing my ground and so on. My heart rate's increasing, I can feel my pulse in my temples, and in that moment, because of the sinfulness of my heart, I'm being selfish and I'm being mean. I'm definitely not acting the way that Jesus would have acted in that particular scenario, right? You're allowed to say, yes, Liam. I know, I've already self-criticized uh, myself on this, so it's okay to agree with me. I'm not gonna be bruised. So, okay, cross. That's the heat, that's the thorns, cross. In what way does the gospel change the way I respond to that situation? Well, by God's spirit, I'm reminded of the great, great truth that God is sovereign. And I happily live my life in accordance to that truth in many other ways. If he wants me on that bus, God is sovereign. He can make that happen. I'm also reminded that his word teaches me that patience is a fruit of the spirit. So I'm feeling conviction. And that's a good thing for wrongdoers. In any case, I mean, fundamentally, it's a busy bus stop. I only really have three more minutes to wait for another bus to come along. But most of all, I'm reminded that my actions bring Jesus glory or disrepute. And I love him more than anything. And I do not want him to be defamed. I want him to be praised. So fruit, here's the map. How should it look? difference would it make for me to apply the gospel to my daily life and to that particular heat? Well, I'd be loving enough to be gracious to those even if I thought they were in the wrong queue, and they are. Change is an ongoing process, you understand. <laughs> Trusting enough that I live like God is sovereign Thoughtful enough to take practical steps. Like if I just left my study three or four minutes earlier than I actually did, it would have made a whole lot of difference to my edginess. So we can take practical steps, you see, to not turn up our own heat. Because if rushing adds pressure and makes me irritable and mean, which it does, the most loving thing I can do is leave five minutes earlier than anybody else for everything else. So I hope you see through that, and even through Alison's input a little bit later on, just how this acts as a, a, a mirror and a map for us. Before I close, I wanna deal with the third point tonight, and that is to take a closer look at heat itself. We've thought about this in our opening song. We live life in a fallen world. There is 
There are things that happen from outside of us that bring heat, and certainly, as we've seen, things from within that produce heat for us. Maybe you can think of those yourself. What kind of things produce heat in your life? What have you experienced lately that have brought struggles for you, challenges, hardships? Maybe it does come in the form of blessing. Maybe it's something good that you've been experiencing. Maybe you feel like you've been coasting a little bit. You've not really struggled in any particular way for a good few weeks and you're, you're breezing. But actually, maybe by breezing through, you're forgetting to pray. And so there's a heat that's distracting you from doing the thing that God calls us to do, to pray. Well, heat comes in all shapes and sizes. Hard times turn up the heat. Some of those out with our control, like Romans 1 explains in general terms, this world is subject to frustration, in bondage to decay, groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of sin. Other hard times come as a consequence of things that we're in control of. Suffering. But those good times turn up the heat too. As I've just mentioned, how many of us have experienced a certain sense of pride when talking to others who struggle and maybe even thinking, I'm actually doing better than them. Many good things in life can produce thorny responses in us, sinful responses in us. But the good news is that God is at work in the heat that we experience. God's word is peppered with verses that make this crystal clear to us. He's achieving his purposes in our lives and in his grand plan, he takes these heat-filled moments, both sufferings and blessings, and puts them to work for his divine purposes. So we know verses like Romans 8, 28, that God says God is working all things for our good. Or passages like 1 Peter 1, particularly verse 7, which talks about how in our hardships and our sufferings, God is actually doing a refining work in us. There's purpose in it. Or 2 Corinthians 1, which says he's using our experience of heat to help us minister wisely and empathetically to others. God comforts us in our hardships and fills that heat, that hardship, with real ministry potential because then you're the person, because of your experience, because you've been on the receiving end of God's comfort in that particular situation, you're in the know. You know what it feels like. So when you hear of another brother or sister who's going through a trial that was very similar to the one that you went through, you're able to speak. You're able to minister. There was a lady I knew in St. Andrews who, who by her own admission made a wrong choice in the person she married. Uh, she was a believer. She married a man who wasn't. And life was hard for her. Hard for them. I preached at this man's funeral. He had not put his faith and trust in Christ as far as we know before he died. Now in St. Andrews, there were many young people thinking and talking about relationships at that time. There were a few who were considering what it would look like to date someone who wasn't a Christian. 
Now, the best thing, now I could have spoken to them about it, and I did, and others did, but one of the best things that I could do was to say, go and speak to Joan. Go and spend half an hour with her. She ministered to them out of her own experience in ways that put even her hardships and years of difficulty into ministry to great effect. God is at work in the heat we experience. The big question is, do we recognize heat when it comes? Are we conscious of it? Is this part of our regular thought process? Are we stopping to be at least a little bit analytical of the way that we've lived our lives? Are we willing and are we open to have other people speak into our lives on these particular matters? Surely this is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Everyday life matters to God's. Even in the little things, it should matter to us. Everything we say or do has consequences, not just the big things, but even in the small things. It has consequences, not just for us, but for other people. The glory of God is at stake. The reputation of Jesus, people's openness to the gospel is at stake. Our own heavenly reward is at stake. My encouragement for us in the coming weeks is to be full of prayer together that God would give us eyes into some of the, if I can use the word, mechanics of sanctification. That we understand just this small part of how he is at work to bring about change in us. Change that is so incredibly and wonderfully possible for us because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our union with him, our common union with each other makes it so. Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord said, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Not just the big ones, but all of them. Everyday life matters to God. He knows our hearts and he redeems our hearts and makes change like this possible. I'd like us just to take a couple of minutes in response in quietness and prayer on your own. I put a few things on screen. Maybe you struggle to see that God knows and understands our heat, the difficulties and experiences of our suffering. Well, take Psalm 8 to 8. Why don't you turn that into a prayer just now? Maybe you struggle to see how God could use the heat that we experience for his good and our good. Take 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, turn that into a prayer. Maybe the idea that God cares about how we apply the gospel to daily life is new to you. Why don't you think about that over these next two minutes and pray? Or maybe your thorny reaction to some heat has created a real split in relationship of some kind. Think about what gospel-shaped, fruitful response looks like and pray for courage to reconcile. Those are just examples. You can respond how you would like in these next two minutes. Let's take time to do that just now.